Okie dokie. We are back. Training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello again, dear friends. It's been a drink or two since the previous episode but we've got a ton of very cool shows ahead of us, leading all the way up to the holiday season and the end of the year. I can't wait to share them with you. As always, I want to thank you for joining me, Paddy Bird, for yet another episode of your favorite editing podcast, Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. So, on this first week back, what are we going to talk about? Well, there's a very particular problem that so many editors suffer from, and I definitely include myself in this. It happens in the early stages of our career, and it really must be eradicated as quickly as possible so that we can move forward into the deeper and more fulfilling waters of our career. Quite simply, it's the numerous creative difficulties that plague us when moving from short-form to long-form editing. It's a really useful subject to discuss on this week's show, and even if your goal is not long-form editing, the theoretical basis for these creative issues and errors definitely echoes in many other genres of our art form, so it's worth a discussion. Just before we dive into this week's creative discussion, let me give you a little inside the edit news. We have some very cool stuff happening, which I'll tell you about over the coming weeks. The first one on the list is our new bootcamp shop. We are putting all of our previous bootcamps up on the Inside the Edit website so that you'll soon be able to watch every single webinar we've ever done and view them at your own convenience. Each bootcamp goes deep into one core creative editing subject. We have sessions on how to cut dialogue, how to create montages, how to use music, how to manipulate pace and timing, and many, many more. They are filled to the brim with creative theory and techniques you will not find anywhere else. So stay tuned for launch day. Okay, it's time for this week's creative discussion. I was recently on a one-to-one feedback session with one of our master's degree students, a very talented young editor in Los Angeles who is making that transition from shorter to long-form cutting. As usual, we were methodically going through her latest cut shot by shot, analysing the sync arc, looking at the specific shots that she'd selected and connected with her dialogue, checking the visual flow, seeing how strong the sequential nature of her B-roll was, as well as looking at how she'd identified and highlighted key moments within the scene and matched them to key moments 
within her music choices. All fundamental questions when looking to progress in high-end editing. And as usual, she displayed a very high level of skill in all of the basic and intermediate areas, which is quite a long list. As an editor who teaches, there's a kind of checklist that you can go through with students. You know, little hints, little clues, little tells that show you where each individual editor is on the progress ladder, what their strengths are, and what areas they need to work on. Contrary to popular opinion, creative editing isn't one skill. It's dozens of separate skills that interconnect with each other. This is why it can traditionally take years to become what you would call a holistic editor, an editor that has evaluated their own abilities in each of these departments, detected signs of weakness in certain areas, and then practiced again and again to correct those particular creative deficiencies. Any editor wishing to go from the average to the lofty heights of excellence has to go, consciously or not, through this difficult and very frustrating process of growth. A walk through the fires of creative hell, if you will. Of course, if it were easy, everyone would be editing big-budget films. If the software could do it through automation, which, by the way, many of them subtly hint at in their marketing, then excellence in this art form could be purchased with a simplistic swipe of the credit card. The traditional way has always been through sheer immersion and repetition. And there's no getting around that. Working with hundreds of different scenes, sequences, genres, directors, camera operators, shooting styles, narrative structures, etc, etc. Until we've experienced every single possible scenario in the edit suite and can act reflexively in any creative situation. It was always thus and it will always be thus. And of course, this takes time. So for many of us, there's a very well-trodden path a common trajectory in how this metamorphosis takes place. We start off in short-form editing, and we gradually move to long-form, if that is indeed our goal. Sounds simple, right? Well, unfortunately, it's not. This journey requires two major things from us, and neither of them come easy or happen quickly. Firstly, we need to completely reevaluate numerous parts of our own creative skills and see which parts are lacking. For example, we may be very good at, say, shot flow or montage editing, two essential skills in short form, but we may be severely lacking in the ability to design body language or understanding the behavioral psychology of a character, two essential skills in long form. This ruthless analysis of our abilities, an acknowledgement that different editing skills are suited to different genres and different film durations, is a fundamental part of this creative metamorphosis that we must all go through. One of the reasons that it has traditionally taken so long to become a highly skilled long-form editor is that editors themselves are rarely encouraged to have this type of self-analysis and self-reflection from a creative perspective. Even the most prestigious film schools and media universities in the world are light years away from this kind of individual depth, as they are shackled by outdated curriculums within a conveyor belt type business model. This is one of the many reasons we get so many film school rejects washing up on the shores of Inside the Edit, saying they learned hardly any actual creative skills at film school. 
The second major thing required after this stock check of our skills is to understand that there is a creative residue that is left within us when we spend a long time, often years, cutting short-form promo-type content. And some of this residue needs to be discarded. Content that we are creating over and over again that has specific outputs, specific durations, specific tonalities and emotional intentions, like anything in life, will become second nature. They'll become automatic, reflexive. They'll slowly become how we see the world in terms of our creativity. And the strange thing is, it's so gradual that we won't even notice this change within us. They leave an imprint on our creative subconscious and we start to see everything through those particular lenses. It becomes part of us. This is the residue it leaves behind and this is what we must sift through and carefully disassemble. In short-form promo work, that means just one thing, high-speed editing. This is what we confronted in that one-to-one session on our master's degree with the young and very talented short-form promo editor from Los Angeles. Her long-form scene was beautifully constructed. It ticked so many boxes that showed, you know, she had an incredibly mature understanding of so many different high-end editing skills. But boy, had she cut it fast. As we were analyzing each shot and why it was too fast, I asked her, why she had cut it at this speed. And she gave the perfect answer for promo-itis. I was scared people would get bored, Paddy. So I sped it up. So we could sit and dismantle the numerous factors at play and talk through every single aspect of why promos are different to long-form editing, but that would be a hell of a long discussion. And so having this discussion framed around speed and tonality is probably the best discussion to have that would have the greatest effect in the shortest time. So let's ask the question. What constitutes the major differences from a tempo perspective between promos and long-form content? Again, we could discuss this for hours, but for the sake of brevity, I will choose one major factor from each camp. On the side of promos, a major driving force is the idea of compression. Not compression in terms of bit rates and codecs, something I confess to knowing next to nothing about, but narrative compression, tempo compression, the idea of condensing and compressing an enormous amount of information, both dialogue and shot-based, and then weaving it together into a stylized and short time frame. Promos are here to tell a huge amount of information very quickly and to do it in a nice visual way that pleases the audience. People will watch the most boring of content if it's cut well. Think of the driest and most dull subjects for a corporate video. You know, if the music is great, the cutting pattern compelling, the dialogue perfectly crafted and the stylization of the pieces done to a high standard, anyone will watch and be engaged. That is the beauty of editing. Promos look to tell the maximum amount of information in the minimum amount of time. And a primary force driving that output is speed. Now, not just the speed of the cuts, but the speed of the action, the speed of the camera work, the pulling out of all pauses, and the speeding up of all the dialogue. 
Promo editors do not allow any gaps or underutilized areas in their sequences. If they can compress the meaning of something down from three to one shots, then that is exactly what they'll do. They summarize, they condense, they compress, they cut faster because the audience's attention span is considered shorter in their specific genre. On the side of long form, it is very different. Again, there are many different factors which we could spend hours discussing. But a major one is the ability to design and replicate the differing tempos of life, of real time. Now, real time may be fast or slow, but it is very different from the hyper-realistic and compressed time of most promos. Reconstructing our own personal perspective of real-time tempo is one of the biggest obstacles in going from short-form to long-form editing, simply because no one teaches it. So editors in the first few years of their career, with some decent promo work under their belt, don't know what to do to improve. It can often hold up your career, as it did mine back in the late 90s. I fell foul of this tempo deficiency, as we all do when jumping up the durational scale of what I was working on. In my first few years as a freelancer, I was cutting short-form pieces and promos for lifestyle programs like Changing Rooms, cult late-night shows like Eurotrash, and promos and short VT inserts for talent shows like Pop Stars and Pop Idol, the precursors to things like X Factor and America's Got Talent. These were all about speed, summarization, compression of narrative. If there's the same information displayed in four different shots, choose the shortest shot and put that one in the sequence. Cut down, speed up and wrap it all up with some nice stylizational cutting patterns, montages and music. And when I was finally getting those first few long form breaks in my career, I can tell you every single one of those viewings with senior execs started off with, this is too fast in so many places. You need to slow down, Paddy. Now, it was an interesting problem to solve. I needed to understand this difference between hyper-compressed promo speed and manufacturing the appearance of real-time, the basis of many types of long-form scenes. And tempo and speed became an obsession with me in everything I watched. Go to the Masters was usually my starting point for any deficiency I spotted in my holistic editing skills. And I did just that. I started going through the classics again, my favorite films, docs, observational films, everything. Everything from the last 60 or 70 years that I loved in our particular art form. I took notes, rewatched scenes hundreds of times and got down to such a granular level that I was analyzing every single shot in a sequence for pacing and what made it the tempo that it was. What I soon realized in long form was that it wasn't just slow all the time, the opposite of a promo. It wasn't a uniform speed that was, you know, just all over slower. No, it was more complex than that. Long form had variable speeds, and that variability was determined by factors like emotion, narrative, and characters. It was like a pre-designed roller coaster with dozens of tiny little changes in tempo. Some of them were gradual changes, some were quick, Sometimes a tempo peak was at the end of a scene, sometimes in the middle. Sometimes a change was triggered by action within a shot, sometimes by music. 
and sometimes by something a character said. Now, of course, it was daunting at first to try and remember all of these techniques and procedures, but every opportunity I got on a job, I was trying it out. Indeed, one of the most popular chapters in the Inside the Edit course is the chapter on pace and timing and what constitutes the pacing within a sequence and how that's created. And this is one of the truly mesmerizing skills in our art form. There are many different factors that high-end editors use to drive pacing, including the speed of the camera work, the speed of the action that plays out in the shot, the distance of the subject from the camera, the music, and of course, the speed of the cuts. The accumulative effect on all of these, and knowing how to weave them all together to create differing versions of real time, is one of the great differences between average and truly world-class editors. But after all of this creative self-analysis and the realization of these two differing tempo worlds, the one major little mantra that came out of it for me at that very specific point in my career was, have the confidence to cut slower, Paddy. Not all the time, not simply because that's the opposite of what most promos do, but because it's a scary prospect to slow down out of hyper-unrealistic tempos and move towards the dramatic real-time tempo that is inherent in a large percentage of drama, doc and observational scenes, the mainstay of long form. And that is all something we need to practice. You know, the higher up in editing you go, the more it's all about nuance and subtlety. And each and every one of us has the power to ferment and coax that nuance and subtlety in our own creative abilities. You just got to want it bad enough that you'll do nothing else until it's achieved. That is the lonely road of creative self-discovery each of us editors has to go down. But let me tell you, it's truly worth it. Back on my one-to-one with the young promo editor from LA, we laughed together after she realized her mistake. I've promoted this cut again, haven't I, Paddy? Yep, you sure have. But you know what to do, don't you? I said, have the confidence to cut slow, she said back to me like a well-repeated mantra. Exactly, I said. One last thing. I think this subject will make an excellent podcast episode. Do you mind if I use you as an example? She laughed and nodded her head. Have you searched far and wide for a course on how to actually edit and found nothing? Have you tried to learn editing and just been inundated with courses that teach the software and not how to cut? Well, you are not alone. At Inside the Edit, we are the first and only company to create an online course that takes you through every single stage of the creative editing process, from baby steps to high-end professional. Through hundreds of visual examples, creative concepts, and stylization techniques, you learn the secrets of this amazing art form. The Inside the Edit course is used by many of the world's major media brands, production companies, and broadcasters. Go to insidetheedit.com and try it for free. It will transform you into a powerful creative editor. So, what am I watching this week? What is this week's 
film recommendation that can enhance your ability to edit in some way. As regular listeners will know, each episode I point you towards something that either influenced me or friends of mine in some way on our filmmaking journey. And in my opinion, this week's recommendation is one of the greatest films of all time. In the autumn of 1984, my mother took the nine-year-old me to see Milos Forman's Amadeus. Now, to say it blew me away is an understatement. If I'm honest, it was and still is the film that has influenced me more than any other. Adapted from a stage play by Peter Schaeffer, which in turn took inspiration from the 19th century Russian writer Alexander Pushkin's play Mozart and Salieri, it tells the story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, one of the most famous composers of all time, through the jealous eyes of a contemporary, the Italian composer Antonio Salieri. Now, what makes this film stand out in a sea of average biopics is the psychological depth, the emotional motivations of the characters and the narrative structure. Set in Vienna in the late 18th century, Salieri is a successful composer and personal music teacher to the Austrian emperor Joseph II, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. But despite Salieri's success, he is a distinctly average talent. All of this is fine until Mozart appears at the royal court with his utter musical genius. And Salieri is forced to confront the fact that he does not have the timeless abilities of this crude and vulgar man. What makes it even worse is that no one else, none of the other musical experts at court, the public and even the tone-deaf emperor himself realises just how talented Mozart really is. Salieri is the only one who knows that Mozart's music is so good it will be played for hundreds of years after the composer's death. It is a painful and angry realisation that destroys his self-worth. And so Salieri decides to slowly, psychologically torture and then kill this little genius in order to punish God for giving someone else so much talent and not him. With an amazing ensemble cast who were largely unknown at the time, it is one of those rare film epics that consistently find itself in the top movie lists of all time. And it didn't do too badly awards-wise either, picking up eight Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. Even as a nine-year-old boy, I made my mother take me to see it a further three times in the cinema. So, aside from being a fantastic movie, what is in it for us as editors? Well, quite simply, it's the music. Every single piece of the film score is original Mozart, and it's got a really interesting story behind it. Milos Forman asked Sir Neville Mariner, one of the greatest conductors in the world at that time, to supervise the score. Mariner agreed, but on one condition, that not one note of Mozart would be changed for the film out of respect for the composer. Now, putting such a restriction on not only the fact that only Mozart was allowed in the score, but also that none of it could be changed in the slightest, was a hell of a thing to do. The score of this three-hour movie then was essentially written some 200 years before principal production began. 
And it was probably way back then as a nine-year-old boy that I started to make serious connections between the emotional state of the characters and the emotional intention of the music. They matched perfectly, despite having been written two centuries earlier. The film is also peppered with so many inventive visual ideas that match up with elements within famous Mozart operas, symphonies and concertos. It is an absolute masterclass of musical connection, changing pace, emotional music power and musical arcing. The one scene that musically stands out to me as one of the most inventive I've ever seen is actually near the end of the film. Mozart is on his deathbed, but desperate to finish his final work, a requiem mass paid for by an anonymous benefactor. Little does he know that it's Salieri who is the anonymous benefactor and he's done this to drive him insane and finally finish him off. Pretending to be his friend on that last night of Mozart's life, Salieri takes musical dictation of the Requiem from the dying genius while he lies in his bed. The scene is so powerful for a number of reasons. Firstly, it exposes how Mozart even at death's door, is so much more talented than Salieri as he hums the notes he wants and dictates the exact key, musical instruments and tempo. It's also obvious to Mozart, but Salieri struggles to keep up. And secondly, the scene is structured around writing one of the passages in the Requiem. Mozart breaks down, sings and hums each individual musical element in this one specific part of the Requiem. First you hear the violins, then you hear the singers, then you hear the cellos, all composed live one after another. The scene is actually the composer at work singing and dictating all these separate instruments and tempo changes to Salieri. And we see Mozart's frustration with Salieri that he doesn't understand music to a genius level like him and they argue back and forth over the course of the scene. We get to the end of the scene and each of the individual elements have been dictated and captured on the page by Salieri. But then in a moment of real genius, the next scene starts with the full piece of music with all of the instrumentation from that previous scene. You hear how all of these individual musical elements come together in such an amazing way. This is great screenwriting, great acting, great directing, great editing and great musical supervision. It was the very first time that I saw a piece of music fractured into its individual elements and then assigned to different areas within a scene for maximum effect. To be great at using music in editing, a rare talent, you have to understand the structure and layers of music first and foremost. And this scene is a completely unique example in filmmaking. Classical music is a great way to start to understand this layering and it can always help us in our careers as so many film scores are orchestral or classical in nature. This film ignited a love for music inside me that remains to this day. But more than anything else, it showed me for the first time in my life how music can bend and shape emotion through specific instrumentation, tempo and connection to the drama that is going on in any scene. I thoroughly recommend curling up on your sofa one Sunday afternoon and letting this epic movie teach you about music. It really helped me.
Okay, it's time for this week's Ask Paddy. Every week I answer a creative or career-based question from our community. If you have a burning question you'd like to ask, simply message us on social or email me at podcast at insidetheedit.com and we'll get your question on the show. So, this week's question is from Matt in the USA and he's asked a really interesting question actually about career skills in the freelance world. So here it is. How important is it to be able to grade, do graphics and audio mix when freelancing as an editor, especially on corporate projects or smaller independent films where the budgets are more limited? Is it reasonable for a freelance editor to be able to do all of these things professionally and be compensated for it? Great question, Matt. And I'm sure there's a bunch of fellow editors in the Inside the Edit community who'd like to talk this through. So here are my thoughts. Let's assume then that you're in the early stages of your career. Now, when I say early stages, I mean in the first five years or so. You may have a dream destination of where you'd like to end up. It might be working in a specific genre, you know, uh, for a specific channel, in a specific location, or with a specific type of client, whatever. That's all well and good, but for now, you've got to pay the rent. At this first stage, you're freelance, and your income comes from attracting work from wherever you can, and from a wide variety of potential clients. So the key question is, how do you stand out from the crowd? How do you make yourself essential as a freelancer in the early stages of your career? Well, it usually comes from being able to do a wide variety of creative skills in our particular art form. Yes, some grading. Yes, some audio mixing. Yes, a bit of After Effects here and there to do some you know, basic titling and, and moving animation. These are all secondary skills to the modern editor that are very important. But top of the list, beyond all of them, is visual storytelling. If you don't understand how to tell a story visually, i.e. things like designing narrative arcs, scene structure, pacing, manipulating time, cutting dialogue, montage editing, and shot flow, etc., etc., then all the secondary skills don't really matter. A beautifully graded and mixed mess of a sequence is not going to mesmerize the audience or your client. It'll just look like a beautiful mess. Of course, we can split these skills up professionally, which is the difference between an offline and an online editor. One can tell visual stories to a very high degree, the offliner, and one can grade and mix to a very high degree, the online editor. But the way the industry is structured, whether it be broadcast, studio, online content, news, corporate, whatever, means that the more of a novice you are, the less you're expected to specialise. The editor who cuts the latest big-budget HBO documentary or rom-com for a Hollywood studio is not going to be mixing the final audio or grading it as well. And as I've spoken about before on Once Upon a Timeline, this is largely to do with trust. Can I trust you with all this money, thinks the client. That could be $1,000 or $100 million, pounds, euros, or wherever you're working. The bigger the budget the more specialist skill required as the bigger productions are fragmented into dozens and dozens of high-end specialist roles. So in those first five years of our career, and it's important to compartmentalize stages in our career to study our progress, budgets will almost 
always be smaller. Smaller budgets create a less risky proposition for clients as potential fatalities in the quality of any editor's work won't bankrupt that client if and when it all goes wrong. A second interesting factor is also at work here. Smaller budget clients, you know, the the videography work, the corporate work, the low budget doc or drama work, these types of clients generally want a one-stop shop. They want to go to one creative person and get one creative job done. A finished film that is cut nicely and graded well and has a good audio mix. Can we hear it? Can we see it? Is it interesting for the audience? These are the things which a low-budget client looks for. So knowing all of this, Matt, we should be looking at the ability to add a small graphical flourish with some After Effects or a nicely thought-out basic grade or, you know, a decent sound mix, not as extras for our clients, but as basic necessities. Lower budget and corporate clients, you know, they don't want complications. They have enough of a hard time getting productions off the ground with the limited resources they have available. For that level of production, they want a good jack-of-all-trades that alleviates their stress, cuts down their budget, and lets them deliver on time, without having to go to three or four creative people. These secondary skills in today's competitive market make us stand out. They make us highly employable. They make clients want to work with us again. Pay the rent first, build up a group of clients who want to work with you, become indispensable, And that's when you can start to grow. But let me just hammer it home one last time. Unless you are not interested in creative editing and want to stay in online editing work, it is your ability to master the artistic visual storytelling side that is going to get you employed and climbing out of the low budget and into the higher productions. Nothing else. The grading, graphics and audio mix are the cherry. The storytelling is the cake. Once Upon a Timeline would not be possible without the fantastic team over at Universal Production Music. They have been our music partners at Inside the Edit from the very beginning. If you're sourcing music right now for your projects, go and check out their site. They have over half a million tracks in every conceivable genre, tone, tempo, and mood. Or if you like any of the tracks on this or any other episode of our podcast, just go over to InsideTheEdit.com and check out this episode's page for links to every single track. If you like this podcast and feel it's helping you in your career as a professional editor, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with your filmmaking friends. Inside the Edit is a very small company that relies heavily on personal recommendations and helping us grow our creative community through a review on Apple Podcasts also really helps us out. Thank you so much for being part of the Inside the Edit family. I hope you enjoyed this week's show, dear friends. Have a great week wherever you are, and I'll see you very soon on another episode Upon a timeline. Stay cool, stay safe, and stay cutting.